0: And if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I would ask that you turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, if you want to grab the Bible that's in that rack right in front of you and turn to page 61. Uh, That is where you will find our main text, Exodus 20, uh, today. Uh, While you're doing that, if you're a guest with us, uh, we want you to know right from the beginning of this message that we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Uh, we believe that it has been preserved for us so we can know God, so we can love Him, so we can worship Him. And, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of Scripture that we don't think that what I'm about to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God has said in His Word. We want to collectively be a church that believes it does not matter what I think What matters is what the Bible says, so what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And if you come to that conclusion, that the Bible is the word of God, that you can trust it and that you should follow it, it significantly impacts the rest of your life. So I don't just expect you to take my word for it, uh, but this is why we want you to see God's word for yourself today in the book of Exodus, because we're in this series, going through the Ten Commandments, our desire for the series is that God's commands would reveal his character and that our salvation would then result in our submission. Because for those of us who are in Christ, uh, we are not under the law we are under grace, and that is very good news uh, because the revealed law of God was never intended to be, j- to, to be what justifies us. It was never intended to be what we point to and say, look at how awesome I am, right? Look at me, I've done it, I've kept it. No, 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 the law of God was intended to reveal our need for someone else to be righteous in our place because on our own, we are not. Um, and I-, I want to approach the seventh commandment cautiously today, uh, because uh, to be upfront, front, this, this is a very sensitive topic uh, for many people. Uh, if you saw, this, if you saw the, the title for today, you're like, okay, this should be interesting, um, because many of us have experienced the devastation of this command not being obeyed. Do not commit adultery. Uh, we've seen how breaking this command ruins things, haven't we? Uh, maybe this has ruined your marriage, the marriage of someone close to you. Um, and, and you don't really find many people arguing with this command. That's one thing that's interesting about this. You don't find many people arguing with this command, but we find lots of people breaking it. Uh, and, and we see that even more when we recognize the heart that is behind this command, which we will look at today as well. But before we get there, uh, we first need to go back up to Mount Sinai where God revealed himself to Moses to give these commandments. This is not a weak God making a few suggestions. This is the God who is in charge. So we're going to see this in the context of the rest of the commands. Exodus 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you don't believe that, the rest of this doesn't matter. But God presents himself as sovereign over all. He's the one that's in charge. Salvation precedes the law, not the other way around. But on the basis of Israel being saved, here are God's instructions for them. You shall have no other gods before me. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. So once again, we have a message based on one verse— uh, that is five words. Five words this time. Last week was four. Five words. Um, that's more. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is not usually how I preach, by the way. This is unique to this series. Um, I, I don't really like preparing messages based on one verse, but there is so much behind this command that illuminates it. Uh, and so we actually have a lot of work to do this morning, believe it or not. And, and it all starts... And the basis of this command all starts with the revelation that God is a faithful designer. God is a faithful designer. So, first of all, we have a faithful God. <laughs> we sing about it all the time. The, the story of the Bible is a story of God's faithfulness. Our God's actions are always consistent with his nature. Faithful is first who God is, and then what he does. And that faithful God designed human relationships for faithfulness, not for unfaithfulness. And I I think what happens to us is we look at the brokenness of our world and the brokenness even of our own lives, especially in this area of morality and sexuality, and then we look at the commands of the Bible— and many people view God's word as just unrealistic, as restrictive, really as totally foreign to everything that they see. And the, and the inclination is just to throw out God's word and just say, that's impractical, it doesn't work, it's, it's not what's going to happen. And the, and the reason why there's this distortion and why we get so disoriented is because God's commands are not based on the world we see today. God's commands are based on the world he created. And the world that he is, by the way, recreating as well. And so before we get to our present reality, right, and the mess that it is, and we're going to have to hash through some things, we need to first see what God originally intended. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God speak the world into existence in six days, as we talked about last week, his creation of man was unique. He breathed into man the breath of life. And God knew that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone in the garden. So he has Adam go through this process of naming all the animals, and Genesis presents it as Adam does this for the purpose of making Adam realize that there's no match for him there. He's unique from all these other creatures, creatures. And so After that realization, God creates Eve and presents her to Adam. And Adam says, at last, (laughs) finally. Uh, This is Genesis 2, 23 through 24 on the screen. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then that's the end of the quote. That's the end of what Adam says. Now pay attention to the next word in verse 24. Therefore. Okay, so this is no longer Adam speaking. This is the author of Genesis providing instruction, providing a principle for us based on what happened in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is as simple as it gets. There is one man... And one woman in the garden. And that is presented to us as the picture of marriage. And so while verse 23 is telling us what happened, verse 24 is telling us what should happen. The author of Genesis switches from narrative to instruction. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. That's not what happened in Eden. There was no father and mother for Adam and Eve to leave, right? So this is not what happened in Eden. This is what should happen now. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We have to see this. The picture of Adam and Eve in the garden is not presented as the best they could do with what they had at the time. It is presented as the ideal. This is the verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19 when he's asked about divorce. And then Jesus doubles down and he adds, What God has joined together, let not man separate. So biblical marriage is the union where God takes two, one man, one woman, and makes them one, and there's no one else. Our marriages are designed by our faithful designer to transfer us to our own Garden of Eden. In that, it's two becoming one, and there's no one else in that garden of your marriage to look at or be distracted by. Husband and wife bonded together in total commitment to each other and to the God who brought them together. And then God designed sexual intimacy, it's his idea, to be enjoyed within the safety of that marriage covenant. It's not supposed to be dirty. It's not supposed to make us blush. We're the ones that have made it that. Right? But sexual intimacy is a good gift designed by our faithful God to be enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage as a physical picture of what should be true in the rest of our marriage. We are one in mind, in purpose, in direction, in passions, in commitment, and then yes, one physically as well. So when God wanted to show his design for marriage, he did not put 100 men and 100 women in the garden like a reality dating show, right? To have them fool it around and hash it out from there. Figure out who you're compatible with. Who do you you like? Maybe someone likes two or three people. That's not what God did. He put one man and one woman together and said, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what God designed so people can flourish, so families can flourish, so communities can flourish, It all starts with God's design for marriage. And so I know, I know that our culture is disorienting. So please hear me today. God's word is incredibly consistent in communicating that God's design for marriage is more important than we think, not less important than we think. It is not loving to be carried along by the winds of our culture because our culture is moving towards death. It isn't moving towards life. So Genesis 1 and 2, it is so clear, God, the faithful designer, created marriage to be faithfully lived out and then for sexual intimacy to be experienced between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant commitment. And that is an incredible gift. Amen? It's a good gift from God. Genesis 3, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy what God has designed. So, sin enters the garden, and sin enters the world, and sin enters our hearts, and sin ruins everything because it is the rejection of God's design and God's purposes. And one place where the effects of sin have been catastrophic has been its effects on the gift of marriage. And the reason that we are just so far from what our faithful God designed. And and the reason that the seventh commandment is so needed is because of this confrontation. God is a faithful designer, but we are not faithful. Uh, And maybe it's even hard for you to listen to me explain what God designed in Genesis 1 and 2, because that's what you wanted. For your own marriage, for your parents, for your kids, but it's so far from what you have experienced or from what others you love have experienced. And, and one reality that makes it very hard for me to know even how to approach this subject is, is that the problem here isn't, uh, isn't a mental one. Most people, even those that have very little moral compass, agree that adultery is wrong. Wouldn't you agree with that? Just about everyone that you know, right? Everyone that I know, even in a dating relationship with very little standards, they still expect their significant other to not cheat on them, right? That is rightly viewed as a universal no. Um, So our world mocks God's standards when it comes to sexuality at almost every single turn, Sexual intimacy only being for within the confines of marriage? Like, on what planet, right? God's instructions are often seen as restrictive, as controlling. Even They're even accused of being unhealthy. Accept this command. Don't commit adultery. Oh yeah, we agree with that one. Right? It's amazing. It's amazing. So the problem isn't first mental. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Our heart doesn't want the right things, and then our heart can make our minds do some gymnastics to justify just about anything, which is why we see the seventh commandment broken over and over again, causing immeasurable destruction and suffering every single time. And and the problem is even worse than we think, because Jesus goes even deeper to the heart of the problem in Matthew 5 Many of you probably knew these verses were coming. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Have you heard that before? Okay, good. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Because adultery is not first an outward action. It is first an inward heart condition. Of lust. And so you might read Exodus 20:14 and think, I would never do such a thing. But then Jesus comes along and he knocks us right off of our high horse. <laughs> because who can say that they've kept this? Right? Who can say that they've never had a lustful desire? Not me. Not me. God is faithful. I am not. And so the temptation with lust is to say, whoa, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Everyone does it, and our culture is just so overly sexualized. Pornography isn't hidden away in magazines that you have to find in a gas station anymore, is it? No, 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 it's everywhere. It's never been more accessible. There's never been more anonymity, and it's never been more acceptable, right? In so many situations, many people don't even bat an eye. And my fear is that because a lot of people just feel so defeated in this area, they feel defeated by lust, and especially pornographic material, it's easier to give up and to tell themselves it doesn't really matter. You're doing better than most people. You can control it. And if you are in that category today, and I know in a room this size many of you are, can we just let Jesus tell us if this is a big deal? Right? Right? So when he says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, is he saying that because everyone does it, it doesn't matter very much? Very next verse. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. (laughs) For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If you're a lefty, just insert your left hand, okay? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Kind of seems like a big deal, doesn't it, church? Kind of seems like a big deal. And and, and, and we know that this is a big deal, don't we? I think we know. We try to convince ourselves it doesn't matter, but we know that it does. This is why we go to great lengths to hide lustful actions. This is why people keep their addiction to porn hidden. It's, it's what we do when no one else is around. It's why affairs are kept secret in the dark. We know that this is a big deal. And, and you might not even be hearing what I'm saying right now because you're trying to figure out if Jesus is serious about this. Right? Like, are we just supposed to start lopping off body parts, poking out eyes? Like, we would be a very different and much less attractive gathering of people next week if we had to do this, wouldn't we? <laughs> we most of us wouldn't make it. Here's what you need to see with both of your eyes still in their sockets. First, it is objectively better. To enter the kingdom of God missing an eye than for your whole body to go to hell. Okay? So, if those are the two options, you pick the first one every single time. But context matters. And Jesus has already explained that the eye isn't the problem and the hand isn't the problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So I could be blind and handless and still have a lust problem because I have a heart problem. And rather than address the root of the problem, we go to great lengths to justify the fruit of our actions to counter the guilt that we feel. Because it's easier to change our minds than it is to change our hearts. So we just decide it doesn't really matter. Um, It's easier to think that a little bit won't hurt. It's easier to think that I can control this and keep it to myself, but but if that's you, I really want you to hear me. Sin always takes you farther than you ever intend to go, and it keeps you longer than you ever intend to stay. And as we've been seeing throughout this series, the problem is not with God's commands. The problem is with us. The law is good because the lawgiver is good. And, and I don't believe the Seventh commandment is just calling us away from something. I believe the command to not commit adultery is calling us to is calling us to the goodness of God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy. God's design is not antiquated and it is not unnecessarily restrictive. In fact, the instruction that we should see in this command is to find freedom in faithfulness. Find freedom in faithfulness. So much of our society's departure from God's design is done in the name of freedom, isn't it? They say, this is freedom. This is, this is freedom. You can do whatever you want. You can love whoever you want. Freedom. I would argue that understanding of freedom is incredibly faulty because freedom is not found in doing whatever you want. True freedom is found in submitting to a better king. And I think you can just look at the book of Exodus and you can see this, okay? The context of the Ten Commandments. God used Moses to set Israel free from slavery to a wicked master from Pharaoh. And now he is giving Moses commands, instructions for how this freed People should live because freedom is not doing whatever we want in our own eyes, whatever's good in our own eyes. That's chaos. No, no, no. Freedom is found in doing what we were created to do. That's where freedom is found. Uh, Sean McDowell has so many good thoughts on this, and one illustration he used was of two people and a baby grand piano. So just imagine two people going up uh, to this piano And the first comes up and they sit down and they just put their heart and their soul into playing one of the most beautiful pieces of music that you have ever heard. The second person comes up and they take a sledgehammer and they just smash that piano to pieces without restraint. And then they take a bow afterwards. Here's the question. Which of those two people is more free? Is it the person who embraces the right restraints so they can enjoy the purpose and design of the piano? Or is it the person who now, know, who now owes the church a new piano? Who's more free? I, I, I would argue that the free person is the piano player, not the piano destroyer. Wouldn't you agree? And I so desperately want all of us to see That God's faithful design for marriage and sexuality is beautiful and it is so, so good. And humanity, led astray by unfaithful hearts, has just taken a sledgehammer to God's good design in the name of freedom. But destroying God's design is not freeing. Freedom is found in embracing the right restraints in order to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. Who who is more free in the kitchen? The chef who knows how everything works and how to how to bring different flavors together to create something amazing, or the person that doesn't know how to boil water? Who's more free in the kitchen? The chef, embracing the right restraints, fulfilling the purpose and design. Who's more free? Is it the husband who habitually looks at porn and hopes no one finds out? Or is it the one that's tempted? maybe even frustrated, maybe having days that they're struggling, but they are guarding their eyes and being faithful to their wife, who's more free. Freedom is found in embracing God's design, not rejecting it. And so maybe some of you are in an affair. This has really felt heavy on me this week. And at this point, you, you wish that you could get out, but you feel trapped in what once felt freeing. Maybe you have this habit of looking at things on your phone, looking at things on the internet that you know that you should not be looking at, and you wish that you could stop, but you feel trapped. You don't know how to stop. You don't know how to get out. Because so much of what our culture calls us to sexually in the name of freedom is actually enslaving. Because that's all that sin can do, right? It's, it's, it chains us down, And what our culture mocks as enslaving, a pure marriage, right? What do they call it? The old ball and chain, right? It's enslaving. No, no, no. We don't talk like that. Right, church? We don't talk like that. No, no, no. Because that's where freedom should be found. Do you believe that? That's where freedom should be found. True freedom is found in faithfulness. So for married couples who want to pursue true freedom together— I have three important steps that we should all be taking. And I'll just say, first of all, I have to go through these quickly. These are much easier said than done. We can talk more if you want to. Here's the first. Remove bitterness quickly. When we let things simmer below the surface, when problems are not addressed and worked through, but they just linger there, when when arguments don't end in true forgiveness, bitterness always leads us away from God's design for marriage, not towards it. Second, pursue more intimacy, physical, emotional, spiritual. God designed marriage for oneness, not for roommates, for oneness. But that needs to be an intentional pursuit. So some of you need to schedule a date night this week. You need to schedule a night out. You need to schedule a night in, whatever it takes. At this stage in our family life, Becca and I have to make an intentional effort, not just to do things for each other, but to do things with each other. Have to do things with each other because we are supposed to be one. We pursue intimacy. Third, watch your eyes because it is the lamp of the body. And when your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if it is bad, your body will be full of darkness. What we look at matters more than we think, even in this culture that tells us it doesn't really matter. And if I could say a word to those who are trapped, or at least feel that way, and they're carrying a secret sexual sin today. Uh, we, we don't talk about this enough, um, and, and I can't promise you that if you come clean, that everything's going to work out perfectly. I, I can't promise you how your relationship will turn out, but I can promise you that honesty is the only path towards freedom. And that Jesus came to set you free from your sin. This is what we're saying about, my chains are gone. I've been set free. He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to have victory over sin. So don't believe the lie that you're destined to fail. Don't walk through life defeated and hiding in shame. No, no. We want the church to be a community where we can find help and encouragement and accountability even for these things that are difficult to talk about because you're not going to win if you're trying to get out of this on your own. You need to talk to someone who loves Jesus and who loves you. We want to pursue the freedom of faithfulness together, not alone. Just imagine if our church trusted and followed God's design for marriage and the seventh commandment that comes with it. Just our church. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be incredible? Like, could you imagine the difference it would make in society if if our entire society followed the heart of the seventh commandment, It would make everything so much better, wouldn't it? I think everyone agrees on this because it's not a mental problem, it's a heart problem. But think about it. If everyone just followed this one commandment and the heart behind it that Jesus points us to, there'd be no STDs, there'd be no divorce, there'd be no pornography, there'd be no sex trafficking because God's design is so much better. It's better. It sounds foreign to the messy reality we know, but there is a new covenant promise. This command is pointing us towards something and we need to see it. It's the promise of Christ and the church. A faithful marriage between a husband and a wife is the primary relationship God uses to describe his relationship with us. Isn't that amazing? This is Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. I don't have enough time, but here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Church, our marriages are to be a picture of how Jesus loves the church, his bride. And if you can just let yourself be in awe of how amazing God's plan of redemption is, knowing that we would reject his design and that God the Son would have to go to the cross for his church in the greatest demonstration of sacrificial love the world has ever known. Knowing all of that, God designed marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Thousands of years earlier, right from the beginning, to be a living picture of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. So every time I look at the cross, I am looking at the ends I should be willing to go for the sake of being faithful to my wife. And that seems so foreign to us, right? We live in this, what about me, culture, And God's word says, no, 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 no. that's not my design. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross, because this is so foreign to us. And so maybe you have never experienced this in a human relationship, but I want you to hear the good news of the gospel today, that this command to not commit adultery is pointing us to. This command is pointing us to the gospel, that Jesus, God himself, is faithful, even when we are faithless. And he loved us with a pursuing love coming near to us when we were far from God. He loved us with a righteous love. He lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He loved us with a substitutionary love. He died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the price for our unfaithfulness, for all of our sin and his suffering on the cross. A conquering love. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin in the grave for us. He loves us with a forgiving and a restoring love. If you come to the end of your And you place your faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. All of your sins are forgiven. isn't that amazing? You don't have to live under the weight of guilt and shame. You don't have to live in fear that someone's going to find out what's on your phone. No, you aren't intended to live in darkness. You can come to the light today. There is grace that is greater than all of our sin. You can be set free. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. You can become part of the eternal family of God and the bride of Christ, the church. The faithfulness God calls us to is the faithfulness that Jesus has towards us. This is the gospel that God calls unfaithful people to find freedom in faithfulness. Do we believe that? He came to transform our unfaithful hearts and make them faithful to him and faithful to each other because that's where true freedom is found. We aren't defined by our sin. We are defined by Christ. We don't have to walk through life wearing the chains that Jesus has broken. Uh, This is why we get to worship through communion. Because it is only through the finished work of Jesus that we enjoy a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. God is a faithful designer. In and of ourselves, we are unfaithful. But because of the gospel, our hearts can be transformed by the power of the Spirit to enjoy the freedom of faithfulness. Do you want that, church? I want that. I want that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thankful that you are faithful. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. So I pray for the people here that are not free, but they feel so defeated and so enslaved today by this, I pray that they would find freedom in faithfulness, that your spirit would change, their heart would transform them from the inside out so they can enjoy your good design rather than rebelling against it. I pray that we would walk in the light as you are in the light so we can have fellowship with one another. I pray that we wouldn't buy into the lies of Satan and live in darkness. I pray for that person today that they would see how deep the Father's love is for them. They are not too far gone because there is a grace that is greater than all of our sin. So I'm thankful that we can look to you, our hope, our righteousness, our peace, our life. And I pray that we would rely more on you than ever before. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.